morning. My name is Jacob. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, and then verses 20 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out to the boat and they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they said. Then he said, throw out your nets on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. He jumped into the water, and he headed to shore. The other stayed in the boat and pulled the, load, the loaded net to shore, for they were only about a few hundred yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Now starting with verse 20. Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until then, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. Um, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. I was singing earlier, and I realized I was, my voice was kind of shaky because I, I now coach soccer. <laughs> I coach um, eight to ten-year-old soccer players, and yesterday I was just like yelling a lot, I guess, at them. Um, all positive encouragement. <laughs> my voice is like shot. Okay, um, but anyways, it's fun. We lost our, I lost my first game. But it's not about winning and losing. It's about having fun. Anyway, they're like, my kids are like, no, I want to win. Um, it's great to see you here this morning. Let's take a moment to sort of pause, to let our brains and spirits and hearts rest in the Lord and to open ourselves to hear what the Spirit has for us this morning. So please join me in a moment of silence and reflection. Lord, there can be so much noise in our world, so many distractions, so many voices. Help us this morning to be present, to be focused, to see you and to hear from you. And may that be receptive and life-giving to our spirits. We love you so much and we pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before I was a pastor, I was a teacher in Missouri, high school teacher. I actually think like half my sermons start off with that Sundays. Um, before I was a pastor, I was a teacher in Missouri. Um, at my school, high school, not my high school, English and social studies classes were team taught together, meaning that there were always two teachers in the social studies English classrooms at the same time, both teaching one classroom. My teaching partner was a man named David Graham. Here he is. Um, he's on the right. I'm on the left, in case you couldn't tell, that's me. Uh, believe it or not, David Graham, me on the left, and then our, one of our good friends in the middle, Austin. So David Graham and I together taught primarily advanced placement world studies to high school sophomores. Here's what you need to know about Graham. Graham was a former student at the high school that we taught at. 
He was a star soccer player at the high school when he was a student. He set our single season record for goals scored at our high school. When I became his teaching partner, he was the head coach of the highly successful girls soccer team. Graham had it all. He was friendly, he was funny, he was outgoing, he could encourage you, he could motivate you, he could challenge you and cheer you on. Basically, Graham was one of the cool teachers when I started teaching. And I had to teach beside him every single day. There's Graham, accomplished coach, living legend, teaching Titan, and there is Webble, new kid on the block, coaching nothing, legend nothing. I'd walk into the room in the morning and Graham would be at his desk using his trash can like a basketball hoop, playing party in the USA on his computer speakers, and he'd have three kids already around his desk, all laughing and loving life. And I would look at my desk on the other side of the room, no kids, no hoops, no party in the USA, just an empty desk. And I wanted to be as good as him. No, I wanted to be better than him, and I felt like it was a race. And he was always way out front, and I could never really catch up. I was experiencing what is known as social comparison theory. It's the idea that we determine our worth based upon how we stack up against other people. Psychologists have found that up to 10%, up to 10% of our thoughts involve making a comparison of some kind. Comparing ourselves to others can motivate us to improve. This is a tactic I sometimes use with my kids. Paxton, please, for the love, just eat a piece of fruit. Banana, apple, strawberry, even one of the good ones, like, just eat a piece of fruit, dude. Just one bite. Look at your brothers, right? They're eating fruit. They like fruit. You can do it. Comparison can motivate us. It has not worked with Paxton so far, but it can motivate us. And sometimes comparisons can make us feel better, like when we compare ourselves to someone who's less accomplished or less talented or less experienced. Those are, by the way, called downward comparisons or negative comparisons, and we use them to pat ourselves on the back a little bit to say that we're at least not pathetic, as pathetic as that person over there, feel a little bit better about ourselves. However, that's not the way we mostly do comparison. Mostly, we compare ourselves against the grams of the world. And not just the grams that we know personally, we actually compare ourselves to all the grams that we can find in the world, and especially online. No matter how good we are at something, we can always point to someone else who is smarter or richer or more attractive or more popular or more put together than we are. This is how I end up juggling all of my par- judging all of my parenting skills against the family that is always smiling and always holding hands and always taking vacations to exotic places, all captured in glorious photographs that make me just hate my life. And I end up thinking, I'll never be able to do that. I'll never match that level. And when we realize that we can't really measure up or match that level with these superstars that are out there, we start to fake it a little bit. We start to misrepresent our accomplishments. We manipulate our online images. We starve ourselves. Or we start to dye our graying beards. (laughs) Also that we can at least look good, right? On the whole, these social comparisons against the seemingly perfect people out there make us feel, leave us feeling dissatisfaction with ourselves. Smaller, inadequate, unworthy. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't compare myself to other people. I don't do that. I don't have that in me. Well, you're wrong. You do compare yourself to other people. And not only do you compare yourself to other people, you compare yourself against yourself. Your former self, have you like lost a step over the years, maybe gained a few pounds? Is your life getting better? 
Are you better off than your parents were at your age? Someone asks you how you're doing, if you're okay, if you're happy, and your answer is usually based on a comparison of some kind. It's like we only know how we're doing relative to how we think someone else is doing. And I see social comparison in the passage that Jacob just read for us. We are in the very last sermon in our series, Risen Easter Ever After, and the very last chapter of the Gospel of John. We are in the last sermon on this series. And in these verses, we have seven disciples fishing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And one of them sees a man on the shore, and he calls out, fellas, boys, guys, have you caught anything? Nope, nothing. Well, throw your nets on the other side, and you'll get some. And so they do, and there are so many fish in the nets, they can't bring them into the boat. Verse 7, the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, hey, it's the Lord. Okay, so pause with me for a second. First question, the disciple Jesus loved. Who is that, right? He comes up six times in this gospel, in the gospel of John. The disciple Jesus loved. He's never given a name. He's only ever referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. So who is he? Well, later in this same passage, we read that Peter turns around and he sees this person, the disciple Jesus loved, and Peter asks the Lord, what about him? Like, what about that guy? Verse 24, a few verses later, it says, this disciple is the one who testified to these events and who has recorded them here. So this disciple is the one who recorded what we're reading. So connecting the dots, we can make the argument that this disciple, the one that Jesus loved, is the one who wrote the gospel that we're reading. All right, so some pieces are falling into place, but who actually is he? Like, who is this disciple? The traditional view is that the beloved disciple is none other than John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, a former fisherman, now a beloved disciple. This is why the gospel is called the gospel of John. And this view corresponds to the historical testimony of early church fathers like Irenaeus, who identifies John as the author. And Irenaeus actually knew another guy named Polycarp, and Polycarp actually knew John personally. So Irenaeus to Polycarp to John, this unbroken line of witnesses, which I just think is pretty cool extra-biblical evidence that maybe John wrote this book. But ultimately, there is actually no way to know who this person is or who wrote this gospel. Yet clues internal to the text and clues external to history point to John, and that's where I personally also land. Not often that you get into biblical authorship in a sermon, but there you go. All right, so John, the disciple Jesus loved, wrote the gospel, let's say. Okay, back to the story. Seven dudes on a lake fishing, catching a whole lot of nothing. A guy shows up on shore, and one of the disciples, the disciple Jesus loved, John, says, hey, it's the Lord. And here's where I think we get some comparison some rivalry, potentially, between the disciples. John is the one who recognizes Jesus on the shore. Bonus points for John. But Peter is the one who jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus. Very passionate. Bonus points for Peter. But John stayed in the boat and worked hard to haul all the fish in and get him to shore. Very responsible. Bonus points for John. And the more that I thought about these two guys, the more I saw this pattern throughout this whole gospel. Every time that the disciple Jesus loved is mentioned in this gospel, Peter is also mentioned right next to him. They're always together. It's prompting us to make a comparison between their two actions and responses and approaches. Just a few of these examples. John 13, the disciple Jesus loved is sitting, reclining next to Jesus at the Last Supper, and Peter is right next to him, goading him into asking Jesus, hey, which one of us is going to betray? 
There they are, right next to each other. In John 19, the, the beloved disciple, John, is at the cross, and Jesus tells him to take his mom, Mary, and take care of her for the rest of his life. Peter, in that same chapter, is denying that he even knows who Jesus is. John chapter 20, both disciples are running to the tomb together, the empty tomb, to see what Mary Magdalene is talking about. And one of the disciples runs faster than the other one. The beloved disciple is faster. He runs right past Peter. He gets to the tomb first. Bonus points for him. They both look in the tomb. But it's only the beloved disciple who the text says saw and believed. He believed, where we don't see that with Peter. Bonus points again. In this gospel, at every turn, these two men are linked together, vying for MVD, most valuable disciple. And even here, at the very end, as Jesus tells Peter how he's going to suffer for the sake of the gospel, John, or Peter's immediate response, his immediate response is to turn around and to point to John and to be like, what about that guy? What about him, Jesus? I mean, it's wild, right? Peter just heard about his own future death, and his biggest concern is John. Like, what about him? How does my life compare to his life? How does my, my faith compare to his faith? How does my status with you compare to him? I don't even know how I feel about what you just said about me until you tell me what's going to happen to him. Peter's talking to Jesus, but his focus is on John. Jesus said in that moment, look at me, Peter. No, 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 look at me. If I want John to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. As for you, follow me. Peter, right here, focus, follow me. There had to be this natural tendency for the disciples to compare themselves to one another. They each go out after this moment, and they each go out to the world to tell people about Jesus, to tell people what they've learned and who they met and what the gospel means. Who is making the most impact, they might wonder. Who has the record for the most converts? Who has been arrested the most often? Who's traveled to the most distant land? Who would get to sit at the places of honor next to Jesus in the kingdom? Who's the smartest? Who's the bravest? Who's the funniest? Who's the best preacher? Who's the best healer? Who's the best fundraiser? Who gets the gold star as a disciple of Jesus? And then Jesus, in the midst of all of us, no, 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 right here. You follow me. Don't worry so much about the others. You follow me. The more I thought about John, the more I think actually John was able to do what Jesus asked. I think he was able to follow Jesus. He didn't compare himself to the others or find his worth in relationship to them. Here's why I think that. I think he just followed Jesus. Here's my evidence. In the gospel, John never mentions himself by name. We've already talked about that. He always calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He's never John interesting choice to make, right? Never to refer to yourself by name, but always the disciple Jesus loved. I used to think that was kind of arrogant. Like, who the heck does this dude think he is? Right? He's calling himself the one Jesus loved. But there's actually nothing in the text that suggests that this disciple was more loved than anyone else, or the most loved of any of the disciples. It's not comparative. It's not superlative. There's no sense of comparison in the words. In fact, it could actually be used to deflect attention, if you think about it. Not to say I'm awesome, but to deflect attention. Because every time the spotlight shines on John in this gospel, he immediately shifts attention to Jesus. Every time we hear the name John, we don't hear it. We actually hear the name Jesus. He views himself in relationship to Jesus. He knows he's called. He knows he's chosen. He's no, he knows he's loved. He isn't better. 
he's beloved. He isn't bragging, he's stating a fact. Jesus loved him. We want to be loved, we all want to be loved. So we're always looking for external validation out there in the world that we're loved by somebody else. It's hard to really trust people when they say they love us or accept us. So we collect likes and followers, but we always need more affirmation, we always need more praise. We want to be loved, we just want something more trustworthy than TikTok, right? We want the one, we want the one who made us to tell us that we're loved, that we're chosen, that we belong. That's what I think John knew. He was beloved, and he believed it so much that he made it his name in the gospel. The disciple Jesus loved. And knowing he was loved was the lens through which John saw everything. It's the lens through which he saw himself. It's the lens through which he saw the others. It's the lens through which he even saw Peter. We think that John wrote this gospel decades after Mark and Matthew and Luke wrote theirs. So those gospels have been in circulation. People knew the story about Jesus and his followers. So what could John add that these other gospels didn't have? What could he add to the story? Well, it turns out he could add a lot. Of all the Gospels, John's view of Peter, get this, is the most positive. Of all the Gospels, John's view of Peter is the most positive. I could point to a lot of examples, but the one I'll point this morning is all the Gospels record Peter's denials of Jesus. All four of them highlight this moment when he failed to identify himself with Jesus. It was his biggest failure. He, when it mattered most, he didn't say yes. But only John, of all the Gospels, records Peter's restoration and forgiveness. John doesn't remember Peter as foolish or irresponsible. He lifts Peter up as redeemed and restored. John is able to note how different he and Peter are. But he also shows there's plenty of room in the kingdom for both of them. Peter, bold, action-oriented, natural leader, the preacher, the martyr. John, a writer, a perceptive, abstract thinker, intelligent, and creative. That's why his gospel is so different than the other three. The others all start with Jesus' birth or Jesus' baptism, and they're all chronological. They tell the story in natural order. But John opens his gospel with this poetic echo of the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's gospel is full of grand imagery of light and darkness, of shepherds and gates, of bread and life, of spirit and truth. It's almost as if John grasped the deeper aspects of Christ's identity in a way that perhaps eluded the other disciples. And thank God, thank God that John saw room in the kingdom for his own voice and perspective. Because when the early church faced heresy, when they debated the nature of the Trinity, when they tried to figure out how Jesus could be both fully God and fully human, where did they turn? They turned primarily to John to the Gospel of John, and John helped them sort through the mysteries into this deeper theology and formulate the creeds and basically save the church. All because John followed Jesus without worrying about the others or being envious of them. He was loved, and he was loved as John. And he followed Jesus as John. We, too, are loved as ourselves. We, too, are called to follow Jesus as ourselves. I saw this on display during our Good Friday service a few weeks ago. Five different people from this church community shared a lament with this fellowship. They shared a lament. And they said, the world is broken. Lord, come and do something about this. Fix what's wrong. Heal. 
We gave each person the same invitation. We gave them all the same parameters. We even gave them all the same word counts. And yet, each of these laments were different. Some were poetic, and some were abstract. Some were past tense, some were present tense. Some were confessional, some were prophetic. And each person shared their story, and they shared their story in their own voice, with their own cadence, with their own style, and each person was beautifully and wonderfully and powerfully different. And we were all blessed in that moment by those differences. And each person, in their own unique way, pointed to the same beautiful, wonderful, powerful Savior. They all pointed to Jesus Christ. They all pointed to the same, even though they were all different in their own ways. Here's, I think, a take-home message this morning. In Christ, we acknowledge our differences without attaching value to those differences. In Christ, we acknowledge our differences without attaching value to those differences. Apart from Christ, we think some gifts are better than others. Some roles are more important than others. Some titles are more prestigious than others. CEOs are way more important than janitors. Head coaches are better than assistants. Doctors are better than nurses. Those who speak into the microphones are more important than the ones who set them up. Those who preach sermons are more important than those who teach kids. Those who sing up front are far more important than those who clean up out back. But assigning those kind of values to our differences, that's how we get racism. Assigning value to our differences is how we get sexism, and it's how we get ageism. It's how we get bullies. It's how we get eating disorders. It's why we cry out to the Lord with so many laments about our broken world. Let me be clear. Differences are real. Differences matter. But they're to be celebrated, not weaponized in the kingdom. And it starts with knowing that you are beloved. That's how, where it has to start. You have to know that you're loved. That's how Mark starts his story about Jesus. Mark, we think, was a companion of Peter's. Yes, that same Peter. And Mark starts his gospel with John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And he records that Jesus came up out of the water, and the heavens split open, and the Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son. And you bring me great joy. So before Jesus did anything, before he did any ministry or performed any miracle or confused any people with his teachings or healed people's illnesses or argued with Pharisees or taught about God's kingdom, before Jesus did anything, he heard these words, you are loved. And that order is so, so significant here. In Christ, before you do anything to earn it, you are loved. Do you know that you are loved? In the deep places in your spirit, in that core, do you know that you are loved? Until you know that you're loved, you will compare yourself against everyone else. And you'll beat yourself up for not measuring up. And you'll get stuck in a shame spiral, and you'll hate yourself, and you'll resent everyone else around you. But when you know that you're loved, you can begin to love yourself. You'll stop seeing the world as a competition or a survival of the fittest or the strongest or the wealthiest or the most attractive. God's kingdom is not a survival of the fittest. God's kingdom is a dance. It is a dance of the beloved and all of their differences. Instead of ranking ourselves against others, we can celebrate who others are without, uh, and what they're good at without feeling threatened by their success. 
this is pretty practical, but a, a tool that I found really helpful in this process is called StrengthsFinder. You guys might have heard of StrengthsFinder. It names 34 strengths built in four different sort of broad categories or domains. And I really like StrengthsFinder because there are no negative strengths. There are no shadow sides to anything. There are no rankings between the strengths. It's just these are strengths. And I've learned through this tool and over the years that my strengths are mainly strategic thinking strengths. I gather information. I like to connect ideas. I like to solve challenges. I'm idealistic. I think outside the box. I like to see possibilities. Graham's strengths were different. His strengths were influencing strengths. He was energetic. He loved meeting new people. He liked getting them to like him, winning them over and making them feel comfortable in the process. He had, as the tool described, a lot of woo in him. He was a wooer. Instead of stressing and wondering whether I was ever going to be better than Graham, I relaxed. Instead of fighting myself to have more woo, I could celebrate his woo. I could be over here, dreaming, thinking, planning, and party in the USA could be happening over there, on the other side of the room, and it was all good. And our classroom was better off for it. Our students grew more and learned more because we were different. Some students gravitated to Graham, and that was great, and some other students gravitated towards me, and it was all good. You know, I still struggle with this all the time. I still compare myself to other pastors. I compare this church to other churches. I compare my success, or my marriage, or my house, or my yard, even my cat, to other cats out there. Is how good is my cat compared to other cats? But through all of this noise, I can hear Jesus. No, focus, see me, follow me, you're loved. Later today, or early tomorrow, or all next week, you're going to find yourself comparing yourself to others. You will make a mental comparison. How are you doing relative to somebody else? And you'll think about those who are above you. You'll think about those who you think are beneath you. You'll measure yourself up against your past self. You'll decide how you stack up to everyone else. But hear me, that whole system that we use to determine our worth based upon how we stack up against other people, the whole thing is invented. Like We made it up out of thin air. It's not the way God sees us, and it's not the reason that God loves us. Other people aren't our reference points. Jesus is our reference point. And he says, don't look at them. Look at me. You're loved. Follow me. One of the ways I think we'll know we're doing this well is if we can look around the room and we can see a lot of different kinds of people. If we can look around and, and see, I don't know, like quirkiness in the room, a lot of individuality. We can look around and see like some bare feet out there or some like blue hair out there or a dash of spicy over there or a little sprinkle of seriousness over here. If we look around during a song and some people have their hands raised and other people are clearly emotional, some people are silent while other people are belting it out. Are you okay, Griffin? Is he okay? Some people fall down out of their chairs <laughs> during a sermon. <clears throat> if we can see these differences, these, this quirkiness among ourselves and not pass judgment on each other, if we can be curious about the difference and not competitive, 
Then we'll be a refuge in this world, a sanctuary for everyone who's tired of pretending and tired of feeling bad about themselves. Church, let's lift our quirks up and celebrate them. Let's celebrate each other for our differences. Let's proclaim that here, people can be who God made them to be without feeling pressure to conform to the room or without feeling pressure to compare to everyone else. We can say, hey, that's different. But all right, all right, that's good. Let's accept that difference. God needs you to be you. You were loved by God, and you are loved by us. And God needs you to be you. And we need you to be you. And guess what? You need you to be you, too. You don't follow as Peter followed. And you don't follow as John followed. You follow as you follow Jesus. And it's good. Amen? Amen.